Welcome to this week's episode of Forging the Word with Trevor Whitman. James 2 is up next, and uh, we're going to get into that in just a second. I did want to throw a caveat out there and uh, and just let you guys know that when I'm teaching these podcasts, um, man, I want you to know that the Lord is convicting me and encouraging me, not only in my study, but also in the teaching uh, Part of a, being a verbal processor is that sometimes while I'm teaching, I'm having revelations in my own life for how I can be applying the things that I'm talking about. And so I just wanted to throw that out there, right? That when we're studying the Word and, and we're breaking stuff down and we're reading verses and breaking down observations, I want you to hear the proper tone in which it's coming from, which is that I don't have it all together. I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. Um, there's always insight to be had or a different perspective to learn. And uh, that's how I hope I always approach these conversations and that when we're talking through these things, hopefully you're thinking through what I'm talking about and thinking about it in a critical way and, uh, and wanting to get the most out of it possible. And my prayer would be is that these conversations that we have every week are driving you closer to the Lord. That's my goal. And it's my goal for myself I started this podcast as a means to have an outlet to teach, but also to give me another purpose to spend time with the Lord and to study and to and to continue to mull over His Word every day, every week to prepare. And so my prayer is that as we're talking through James 2, and there might be some prickly points that you may get convicted about, my prayer is that conviction would lead to repentance and reconciliation and, and edification and make you and I both better. And I know that I get super convicted because the things that I'm teaching doesn't mean, hey, I'm teaching you these things because I'm perfect at them. I'm teaching you them because it's what the Lord says we need to do from his word and we need to do them together. So <laughs> lots to unpack today in James 2. So let's get started. We're going to start in James 2, verse 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, let's roll. It says this, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, hey, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Guys, this has been kind of a constant theme. And I'm not sure why, but it's come up in almost every podcast that we've done so far, which means either I need to hear it, you need to hear it, or a little bit of both. <laughs> but it's, it's this concept of being rich according to the world's standards it's not an indication that you're righteous. This is another call against the prosperity gospel. Does the Lord bless his people? Absolutely. Yes, he does. And any blessing that you have in your life, right? We, we talked about it last week, that every good gift comes from the Lord. So if you've been blessed 
financially or otherwise, and that's fantastic. That's great. But that does not equate to righteousness. Just because you have resources, just because you have money, does not mean that you're on the straight and narrow doing it exactly the way you're supposed to be. Blessing is very differently defined by the Lord than it is in the world. You know, we, we read the Bible, and I'll, I'll bring this up again really briefly, but some of God's most righteous followers throughout Scripture are poor in a monetary way. But as it says here in James that though they may be poor in the eyes of the world, they are rich in faith. You see, the emphasis is not being rich or poor, but it's how we treat people of different economic standards than ourselves. I remember my freshman year in college down at Multnomah that I had gone to an organization named Night Strike, and that was an organization that I was a part of my whole freshman year as my student ministry for my student ministry credit there. And, uh, and what was cool is every week we'd go to downtown Portland and we would provide food and socks. And we did this activity that honestly, when I first did it, I, it took so much humility or gaining humility, the Lord humbling me, <laughs> best way to say it, because at Night Strike, we actually washed the feet of people that were homeless and we would give them a new pair of socks. And what we found out is by talking to homeless people, Night Strike, the organization, over the course of years had realized that. They said, hey, what is the most valuable thing to you? Because a sandwich is great and, you know, food is great, maybe a hat or a jacket during the winter. But what is the most valuable thing to you while living on the streets? And their response was a clean pair of socks. And so every week we'd go downtown and we would go and feed and wash the feed and, and give resources to them who were needy. And I'll tell you what, that experience changed my life. Because it's so easy to see the person standing on the side of the road with a cardboard sign or, you know, seeing someone downtown and seeing them, you know, in a poor state and almost dehumanizing them, not even looking at them, not waving at them, not interacting with them, not talking with them, because it's easier for us to dehumanize them than it is to see them exactly what they are, which is someone loved by God. And here's what's crazy is at that ministry, it was pretty cool. I got to interact with a ton of different people from a ton of different backgrounds. And something I learned from interacting with them is that almost all of them didn't choose the life of poverty. Now, I'm not saying I'm not leaning into the victim mentality. I'm not saying that there's not other things they could be doing, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is all of them had multiple circumstances that happened in their life that put them on the path that led them to where they were. And part of that humility for me was realizing that, man, I was a couple bad circumstances away from that being me. There were people that were my age <clears throat> that were already homeless. There were people that were struggling from any age demographic, any race demographic, 
down there on the Portland waterfront. And something that was great about that ministry was that it forced me out of my comfort zone to interact with them, to talk to them as humans as they are, and realizing that they're people. I know it sounds silly, but it's something that we all struggle with, especially in our Western culture. Right? Actually, I shouldn't even say that. Even in biblical culture, right? The guy that was, you know, the paralytic laying by the gate that got healed um, and ran into town and was freaking out. It talks about that he was there for many, many, many years. Right? His name is Beautiful. Guys, it's crazy that we know these things, and yet it takes an experience like that for us to see it again, see it with fresh eyes. And what's wild is what James is talking about here is we all do it naturally. We see someone of stature, of status, title, job, and we're willing to roll out the red carpet for those people. And yet the people that are less than or seen that way in society or that are struggling, impoverished. And we judge them, right? And it's really interesting. He says in James, it says that we discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. You see, this is the essence of judgment, the type that we're taught not to have by Jesus in Matthew 7, 1. When it makes us take a lower view of others that we shouldn't have. You know, when Paul talks about in Philippians 4, we talked about this already, so I'll be brief, but Philippians 4, when we don't take the verse out of context that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, the verse right before it says, I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to live in want. And I've learned to become content in all things. Guys, that, that means that really our monetary status here on earth means very little. It's really not what God cares about in the slightest. It's what humans care about. But the Lord doesn't care about that at all. Does it indicate anything about us? Other than maybe how we were born or certain advantages that we've had or certain head starts that we've had or, you know, being raised in you know, a two-parent household or, you know, whatever. Lots of things play into the success that we find in this world. It's just a reality. There's statistics that show that. And here's what's crazy is judgment isn't when we simply make an observation. It's not. It is with the evil thoughts that James speaks about where we can judge someone for being poor, but alas, they could be the ones judging us for what we don't have. Right? Mark 8, 36 says, what is it to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Right? Something that we quote pretty often. But what's weird is we all know that verse, right? Not, what I'm saying is something that you've heard before, right? We need reminders, sure. But it's crazy that we have to be reminded to treat certain people in our society as humans and decent. Treat them who they are. 
Treat them like who they are, which is God's children. Someone that God cares about very much, that the Lord cares about them. And it's easy. It's so easy to only treat people that have much well. But James points out, he's like, hey, listen, you can treat them well all you want, but they could be the ones suing you. They could be the ones making your life harder. And guys, this is something that I struggle with, with how we've set up ministry in today's day and age, which is that we require, we need tithe money to pay salaries so we could put food on the table. Guys, it's human nature for us to, people that are preaching, to cater the word towards the people that are in the audience. It's something that we have to fight. It's something that naturally we want to do. Hey, that person helps pay my salary. I should probably teach to what they want to hear. Guys, when the Bible says that when you're teaching the word, you shouldn't be tickling the ears of the audience, this is why. Because it's so easy to cater and to teach in a way that people are going to respond to where it doesn't impact them, it doesn't convict them, it doesn't challenge them. All it does is encourage them and tell them that everything's fine and dandy and that they're doing great and that because they're good people, everything's going to turn out well for them. It's not what the Bible says, but it's what's taught. And it's what's taught because it's what's easy and it's what brings money in the door. Let's be honest. Let's be really honest. Guys, I, I really believe in what's called bivocational ministry, personally. I think when you make it your job to preach the gospel, I think it's way too easy to slip into those, into those things. And maybe you start out with the best of intentions, but I've seen it happen time and time and time again with people that I care about, that they fall into this trap of teaching what tickles the ears of their congregants, their listeners, whatever. Because it's easier. It's a path of least resistance. And it's how you can feed your family. I almost don't blame you. But in bivocational ministry, that means you work another job where you get paid so you can feed your family. You do ministry separately. I think about all the disciples. All the disciples had other vocations, right? When Jesus died, they all went back to him. Fishermen, right? Tent makers, whatever. They all had occupations outside of their ministry. And I think that's the way to do it because it takes the pressure off. It says, hey, I can preach the gospel and one person can listen or thousands of people can listen and it's going to be the same because it's preaching the truth without worrying about how you're going to feed your family. And guys, I think that's a model that works because in our society, it's tough to preach the truth when you know that if you preach the truth, people might leave. And if they leave, that means there goes some tithe money. And if we lose tithe money, we're not going to be able to afford the building that we're in. And we're not going to be able to afford the salaries for the people that are on staff and all the things that we do and the programs that we want to run. And so it's easier to just cater to those people so that they stay in our churches for years and years to come, tithe for years and years to come. And then we can just do whatever we want to do as long as those people are happy. And I am here to tell you, here in James 2, it's saying, listen, that is the opposite of what we should be doing. It's the opposite. 
we should be preaching the truth without abandon. We should be treating people equally regardless of their resource status in our society. And honestly, it's probably the poor among you that maybe have the deepest faith. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm not saying you can't have deep faith if you're rich or have a lot of money. Definitely not saying that. What I'm saying is, is it's easier to depend on the Lord day to day when you have nothing. I know the times in my life that I've been the closest to the Lord is when I didn't know where my next paycheck was coming from. And I had to depend on him every month to pay the bills and to put opportunities in front of me so that I can make sure our bills get paid. And that was me as a husband, as a father, as a provider. And guys, I'm telling you, I've never been closer to the Lord than when I was during those time periods because I had to lean into him. It's easy to get comfortable when we have a lot of resources. Again, not wrong to have a lot of resources, but don't kid yourselves that just because you have a lot of resources that that means that you're living a righteous life. It's not an indication of those things. We need to constantly be seeking the Lord, pursuing the Lord, and striving to be the people that he's called us to be. All right, let's move on. James chapter 2, verse 8 through 13 says this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Guys, James 2 is getting into it. I told you at the very beginning of this book that James calls it like it is, has very little fluff, and it's going to cut you right to the bone. (laughs) Oh, man. Because he talks about this. It's a super, super interesting point here that he makes, which is, listen, if you break any law, any, you are a law breaker, and you are guilty of breaking all of the law, all of it. And guys, it's the same way in God's kingdom. That's what he's trying to drive at. And our society somehow has made some sins worse than others, elevated some sins above the others where it's the only ones we want to talk about. But somehow we've swept a lot under the rug in our society where we've, you know, made some sins socially acceptable, (laughs) even amongst believers. But the problem with having any socially acceptable sins is that all sin leads to death. The end result is the same. If you spent your whole life living a perfect life, except for the fact that you lied occasionally, that's it. Nothing else. Guess what? That sin still leads to death. It still leads to eternal damnation and separation from the Father. Any sin. You sin in any way. That means you are a law breaker. You are guilty of breaking the entire law if you break one. 
That's the, those are the stakes. And here's the deal. We, we know as humans in our society that there are earthly consequences that are going to be different from each other, right? Especially even in different countries, there's different laws and jail time based on actions that we take. But kingdom consequences are the same. Guys, all sin leads to death. All of it. All of it. But yet somehow we're convinced that our sin isn't as bad as, in quotation marks, those other people. Guys, I want to add a new angle to our superhero illustration that I've had in previous podcasts is that we all like to think that we're the superhero of our own story and we're all guilty of it. If you're sitting there listening and you're saying, well, that's not me. Yes, you, yes. (laughs) We'd like to think that we don't think the world revolves around us, but we do. It's just reality, right? As teenagers, we're a little bit more upfront about it. As adults, we're a little bit better at hiding it, but we're all the superhero of our own story. And something that we do when we watch superhero movies is that we brush off the wrong things that they do because we can justify it with all the good that those superheroes do. And so because we view ourselves as our own superheroes in our own story, we can brush off the wrong things that we do and say, well, you know, at least I'm a good person and at least I'm not as bad as that other person. At least I don't sin the way that that other person does. But guys, here's the problem with that. Even Hitler, yes, I'm talking about Hitler. (laughs) Even Hitler believed that he was doing the right thing when he was executing millions of Jews. Guys, everybody, everybody operates from the psychological standpoint that what they are doing is the right thing, according to them. And that is why relativism is dangerous. You cannot have your own truth, in quotation marks, because that isn't how truth works, right? Truth is binary. Truth is fact. It's immovable. It's undebatable. That's what truth is. And you can't have your own truth because that means that truth is subjective. And that means that truth can change and truth is, you know, whatever we think it it is. And that's just not reality, You can think gravity doesn't exist all you want, but you are affected by gravity every day. Guys, truth is immovable. We cannot change the definition of truth just because we feel like it. But here's why James brings it up. This is why why James brings up this concept of All sin leading to death and no sin being greater than the other or worse than another because people would respond to him saying, hey, do not act with favoritism by saying, well, that's not terrible compared to all the other sins of other people. But sins we don't talk about as a society or from the pulpit are just as insidious as other sins in the result of them, right? Let's let's go there. What are some sins that we never talk about or very rarely talk about in our culture of believers right now? Man, we don't talk about gossip, right? Talking behind people's back. We don't talk about that. What about slander? Tearing someone down, 
right? It's generally linked with gossip. Right? What about gluttony? That's one we really don't talk about, right? The act of overeating or overindulging ourselves. Right? What about malice? Wishing harm upon someone else. Right? What about drunkenness? Being numb and out of control. We don't talk about those sins. We probably don't talk about those sins. Well, probably because we're not the ones that uh, we don't want to talk about those because we do those things. Guys, I, I, I just got to be real. I've been in enough Christian circles, going to Bible college, teaching at a Christian school, being a pastor at multiple churches. And I'm saying that in those circles, gossip runs rampant. Slander runs rampant. Malice runs rampant. It's just reality. And it drives me crazy when we, uh, we just don't talk about certain sins because, you know, we might do them occasionally, so we're going to intentionally not speak out against them because, well, that would lead to conviction. But, you know, we do talk about a lot of other sins that maybe we don't struggle with, right? What about homosexuality? We sure talk about that one quite a bit. We elevate that one up on the pedestal as a culture in the Christian realm. And yeah, I'm going to be frank here that homosexuality is a sin. It is. It's Old Testament, New Testament, right? We, we know that it is. If you don't think it is, it's you're trying to justify certain things, trying to make things easier. It's just, it's reality. It's a sin. But it is not a worse sin than gossip. It is not a worse sin than slander. You know why I can say that? Because all sin leads to death. Stop elevating other sins above others. Because here's what's crazy. is Somehow people have convinced themselves that if someone sins in a certain way, that they have permission to love them less or to treat them differently. And that is garbage. It's garbage. Just because someone struggles with homosexuality doesn't mean that we treat them with any less respect or any less dignity or any less love. Guys, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Because we shouldn't change our love for people in our lives because of how they sin. Especially if we're treating them better because they commit socially acceptable sins, but we won't love those that live in the condemned category in a sin that somehow we've elevated in our own minds. This is the judgment that James is talking about. That loving our neighbor is far more important than our judgment of their sin, which we shouldn't have because we're sinners too, right? It's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you don't have mercy on others, you're not going to have mercy on you. That's how it works. If you're not going to love people because of the way that they sin, then you're not going to be loved because you're sin. Do you, do you see how this works? Right? The only judgment that believers are called to have is in 1 Corinthians 5 when we're called to hold each other accountable in the church. Which brings me to another side note. We're going there today, folks. We cannot hold non-believers to Christian standards because they're not Christians. Right? That's like asking someone to follow the Canadian law while living in America. It doesn't make sense. Stop holding non-Christians to Christian standards. 
right? Live your life the way God has called you and live in such a way that non-believers want to actually try and emulate it. That leads to questions that can lead them to Christ, right? I don't know if we live that way anymore. I don't think society looks at how Christians live and go, man, I want that. Christians aren't viewed in that way in today's day and age. And because Christians aren't viewed in that way, somehow a lot of Christians have convinced themselves that we're living in a time of persecution. Wake up. We are not living in a time of persecution. You can go to church. You can read your Bible. You can meet together with other believers. You can listen to worship music. You can worship God however the heck you want. Guys, this is not a time of persecution. It's just not. Stop begging for a time of persecution. I know I've been taught my whole life that a time of persecution is coming for believers and to be expecting that, and I am. There will be a day, there will come a time when we are persecuted for being Christians, but now is not that. We are not being persecuted in today's day and age for being believers. We're not. We're not. The restrictions that organizations have because of COVID and everything happening in 2020, they're happening to everyone. And in different ways. And yes, there's different rules and different regulations based on where things are at. And yes, I get that not a lot of it has a lot of common sense. And I'm with you. But it's not persecution. It's not. So going back to this, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves and have mercy on people. Seek understanding. Listen. Be empathetic. Be like Christ. Stop holding non-Christians to Christian standards. Guys, when I'm interacting with people that are not believers and they sin in any type of way, I'm not called to judge those people. You know what I'm called to do? I'm called to love them. I'm called to support them. I'm called to encourage them, be light to them. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't hold my own standards. That doesn't mean that I have any less view of the truth. It doesn't mean that I don't believe that what they're doing is sinful. Sure. But you know what? I think that you're sinful too. I think I'm sinful too. But because I'm a sinner and because you're a sinner doesn't make me view you any less. So the fact that we have a handful of sins in our minds that allow us somehow to treat others differently is wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong. We are called to love people regardless of how they sin. That's not our problem. That's between them and the Lord. That's not us. I cannot hold them to standards for being a believer when they're not. I just can't. We are called to love. We are called to have respect. We are called to have dignity for all people. Rich or poor, no matter how they sin, We are called to love them and have mercy on them. All right, let's finish up. James chapter two, verse 14 through 26 says this. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. 
You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Guys, powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. James is not saying that what you do is what saves you. He's not. It is by faith that we're saved. But if our salvation is genuine, actions come with authentic faith. What is our faith if we talk the talk, but don't walk the walk? Right? It's messed up. James uses the example. What if we, what if we tell people to keep warm and well-fed, but don't actually do anything to actually help them? Guys, it, it baffles me that somehow we have gotten okay with telling people all our platitudes, right? Oh, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, guys, thoughts and prayers. But yet we don't actually help people. We don't change things, right? We, we do things like short-term mission trips, which I've always struggled with a little bit, was never able to put any words to why. But I would struggle with this concept that I found out later was called toxic charity, right? Which is, hey, we're going we're gonna to just give them a bunch of stuff, we're going to go down to some, you know, poor community in some other country and we're going to just give them a bunch of stuff and they're going to be really happy because we're giving them a bunch of stuff and then we're going to leave. Those people aren't going to be any better off than when they were before we came. They'll have some stuff for a short period of time and, and then wait for the next group to come in to give them more. That's not equipping people. That's not helping them. That's not actually doing anything of value. Guys, somehow we've convinced ourselves that our experience of things outweighs actually helping people. Guys, I've been on short-term mission trips. I've led short-term mission trips. I've fundraised for short-term mission trips. I've done them. I've done a bunch. And I'll be honest, in the moment, it's like, yeah, I want to have a good experience. I want to go down and experience the Lord in a new way and you know, see people in different experiences and live in life differently than me and all these different things. But what I've realized is that in our culture, somehow short-term mission trips have become more about the experience, right? Like, hey, I want to go down for the experience of doing all these things. Which I'm like, is that the gospel or is that consumerism? Is it the gospel that want to, to go somewhere because of the beach and it being a cool vacation and sure we'll do some things like hey we'll hand out some supplies or maybe do a small vbs but the rest of the time is really about getting pictures on instagram with kids that are less fortunate than us in our society man i guys it's toxic it's toxic so you go okay trevor well if that's not how to do it then how should you 
Well, I think we are called to look for opportunities to bless others the way that they need and not what we tell them that they need. The opportunity to be a part of a nonprofit here in Tacoma called Uncommon for a couple of years. And within Uncommon, it's really cool. The leaders of the organization, the way they talk about serving the community is in a way that I'd never heard before. Which is that we do not go into a community or a school and tell them what we're going to bring them. Right? The arrogance (laughs) that we have sometimes when we're giving things to people. Because here's the thing is it's easier for us to do two things. It's either easier for us to just give someone money, like, hey, let's just raise a bunch of money and give it to them, and then they can deal with their own problems, right? So it's a one-time, one-done deal. No investment or, you know, commitment to the community long-term or ways that we're actually going to bring impact. Or we're like, hey, we're either going to give you money or we're going to come in and give you what we think we need to give you and we want to give it to you the way that we want to give it to you, the exact method that we want to give it to you, to the exact demographic that we want to give it to you. Those are the two ways that we serve people the most in our culture, and both are coming from a place of pride, arrogance. And what's crazy is we do these things, and we pat ourselves on the back and say, look, we are good Christians today. And then we go home and and do our thing. That's not what we're called to do. And being a part of Uncommon, one, showed me that, and two, showed me a different way, which is that we're, we're called to seek from leadership what their needs are, right? Hey, what, what do you need? How can we be a blessing? How can we fill needs in your community? And you know what's crazy is most of the time, especially in schools, you know what they request the most? Your presence, connecting, building relationships, influencing for the positive, mentoring. That's what they need. But yet it's easier to write a check. It's easier to run one weekend outreach event where we bring them what we think that they need and and do it that way. It's much easier that way. You know what's hard? Investing. You know, it's hard doing what they need, what they have asked for and building around that way. Because here's the deal. If the leadership of an organization, a school or whatever that you're serving says, hey, we need X, Y, and Z and you provide X, Y, and Z, you know what that leads to? Collaboration. You know what that leads to? Buy-in. Guys, we are not called to just do what we think is best. We're called to serve people. We're called to love people. We're called to do the things that Jesus would do. Right? How many times did Jesus go up to people asking them what they needed? Read your word. It's pretty crazy. The God of the universe who can know all of your thoughts still asked a lot of questions. A lot of questions. You say, James goes hard here because he knows that we are going to be known for our fruit. Jesus said it too, right? It's not judgment, it's observation. When someone is truly saved, there is fruit in their life that is evidence of that salvation. Guys, our faith in our works, 
are supposed to work together in harmony, feed off one another. The more faith we have, the more actions that'll come. And the more that we're obedient with our actions, the more faith that will develop. We're supposed to do, guys. We're supposed to act. Going back to James 1, he's reiterating a point that he had in James 1, which is we are not called to just be innocent standbyers, innocent members of the audience, right? We're not called to be just spectators. We're, we're called to get in the game. We're called to go do, to go be the body of Christ. And if you try to say, well, I have faith, I believe, but your actions don't line up with that. Do you really have faith? Are you actually saved? I don't know. I can't make that judgment. Only you can. But what I'm telling you, if there's no fruit in your life, that you're a believer, if you don't talk like a believer, if you don't act like a believer, then you're probably not a believer. Which means that there's some work to do, some repentance to be had. But I can't make that distinction. I can't call that out. And I won't. I refuse to. I don't do that. It's not my job. But the Lord knows your heart. Then the Lord knows if your salvation is genuine. And I, if I was you, I wouldn't leave that up to chance. I know that I'm challenged by that. Hopefully you are too. And so to wrap up James 2, he talks about three major things here. He says, one, there's no value in material items here on earth. And we should especially not link that to human value and how we treat people. Two, all sin leads to death, which is why we need to repent, turn from our ways, and not judge others in their sin. We are called to love, respect, and give dignity to all people, regardless of how they sin. And lastly, we can't just have faith. If we don't have actions or fruit that represent our relationship with Christ, we don't have faith at all. Go and be the body. Guys, James 2 cuts to my core. I don't know if it does to you. There was a lot of convicting words in that section of Scripture, but I'm thankful for it. Guys, I'm thankful for conviction. If you got a little angry at me today, if you got a little convicted and, and grumpy at me, or you, you were tempted to turn it off, but you made it this far, I'm thankful. Because <laughs> guys, those aren't easy words to hear. But I promise you this, I'm not doing this podcast to tickle your ears, right? I think that's one of the benefits to doing it this way, is I'm not making money from this. There's nothing for me to gain from doing this. And so I can freely teach the word the way that it is. And hopefully you can be encouraged by it, you can be challenged by it, you can be convicted by it. And guys, I, I know that it's not popular. I know that this podcast isn't going to go viral because I'm teaching truth. And I don't need it to be. I don't want it to be. My hope is, is that the people that listen to this are taking at least one thing. Taking at least one thing that they can apply to their lives, that they can, that they can hold on to, that they can think about as they go about the rest of their day, the rest of their week that they can apply to their lives, that they can share what they've learned with other people and hopefully share this podcast so that other people can grow and be challenged as well. And I appreciate it. I appreciate all of you who have reached out thus far and told me that you've shared it with your brothers, your sisters, your aunts, your uncles, your moms, your dads, so that they can be encouraged, so that they can be challenged. I thank you for that. And my prayer would be that as you're listening to this, you would think of other people that may need to hear this as well. And that you will listen to next week's episode on Forging the Word with Trevor Whitman. Yeah.